Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 7, please. Psalm 7, this is, as we go through the Psalms, our musicians are writing musical settings for each of the Psalms, and this week we moved to Psalm 7, last week was Psalm 6. And as we uh, begin, let's read our text, this is Psalm 7, and it is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. A Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush of Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous, God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent... He will sharpen his sword, he has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is the word of the Lord. I remember years ago I preached a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. And um, maybe I'm sure I've told you this before, but, you know, I was in my 30s, just started being a pastor. And so I thought, well, you know, Ten Commandments, that'd be a good thing to preach on. And so you start preaching the Ten Commandments, and almost immediately, it's like you hit unbelievable turbulence. And you think, you know, I've never heard a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And then you fasten your safety belt. And then you hope that the airbags work. And you just watch as you preach the Ten Commandments and the congregation is cut off at the knees. 
a growing sense of God's holiness, a growing sense of our wickedness. And then souls are awakened. And you think, whoa, well, that's how I'm experiencing the Psalms. You know, it's one thing to read the Psalms in private. But it's another thing entirely to read it publicly and then for the musicians to set it to music and then to preach it. And this psalm is a good example because this psalm is unseemly, obnoxious, You know, you hear David praying this to God, and you think to yourself, whoa, can he be serious? Everything about it is just embarrassing. I was with a guy yesterday who was with a couple friends. One of the friends was my relative. I was up at our our family reunion up in Michigan. Uh, Mom Taylor is is, is 98. She has 28 grandchildren. Our youngest son, Taylor, is her last grandchild. Now she has 65 or 67 great-grandchildren. So today up there, there's like 100 people. Big tent, catering. And in that group are a couple guys who had come to be with their friend who's one of my my mother-in-law's grandsons. And these guys are in the prime of life. They've gotten a graduate degree in engineering. Prospects are looking good. And life is in front of them. And I just assumed since their their friend that was there and is a part of the family was a Christian, they were Christians, I was talking to them, and I, um, after a few minutes of talking to them, I turned to one of them, I said, are you a Christian? He said, no. I said, really? That always encourages me when people say they're not Christians. You know, do you understand that? This is so refreshing. And uh, so I said, why not? You know, seems like a good question, you know. (laughs) And then I was really encouraged because he said, well, Jesus isn't nice. And then I squealed and I said, right on. You got it, you know, you got it. And then he said, um, I said, I said, any other reasons? And he said, well, Jesus teaches in parables, and they're hard to understand. And then I was really excited. And I said, you've got it, you know, you've got it. That's excellent. And the two other Christian friends were looking at me like I was insane. This was their their uncle pastor, you know, celebrating the unbelief of their friend. They'd never quite seen it that way, you know. And so I said to him, um, tell me, why did Jesus teach in parables? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, look, come on. If you're not going to like Jesus because he teaches in parables, do you know he actually tells you why he teaches in parables? And I said, don't you want to know why? I mean, if you're going to be an intelligent man who has reasons for not liking Jesus, 
And one of them is he uses parables. Shouldn't you at least know his defense of why he teaches in parables, you know? (laughs) And of course, he didn't want to know. But I made him tell me, well, why? You know, he kind of spit it out, you know. Well, why? And then I was ready. (laughs) I said, this is a direct quote. This is what Jesus himself said is the reason he does the thing you don't like. He says, so that having eyes you will not hear, having ears you, having eyes you will not see, having ears you will not hear, else you would repent. And then I said, now, you're right not to like Jesus. Because Jesus teaches in parables so that you will not repent. What a wonderful testimony to uh, uh, an American man in the prime of America's empire with a graduate degree in engineering. Jesus is not nice. And when we listen into the prayers to God of the saints, they are not nice either. And this prayer is not nice, right? I'm going to get to a point in this sermon where I'm going to read something from Spurgeon. And we had a visiting couple here this morning. And when I read the quote of Spurgeon right in the middle of it, this couple got up and marched out. And you either think, well, you know, I thought I put on deodorant this morning. You know, you either take it personally, you realize that Scripture is a rock and a hammer and a fire, right? And we just cuddle up to it, you know? And man, we get burned. And this psalm burns us. This is hard, hard psalm. And one of the things that's hard about it is that that the Bible tells us that it's to be what? It's to be sung. Did you see that in the inscription at the top of it? It says, which he sang to the Lord concerned. So David is not just sort of like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the... David is singing this, okay, You know, God who has indignation every day, if man, he will sharpen his, his, bent his bow and made it ready. And David, you know how everybody today talks about having a passion for, you know, peanuts and a passion for gravel and driveways and a passion, you know, everything people have passion for. But David has passion for the holiness and judgment of God because he sings it. You can't sing something you don't have passion about, right? Right? You remember what William Law says in a serious call to live out in holy life. Centuries back, he says, you know, many men say they can't sing when it comes to worship. And he says, basically, liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. He says, you go in the bar and get drunk and you can't stop singing. Every man sings about what he has a passion for. Man united, you know. Can you imagine stopping Manchester from singing? 
And so this thing is a reflection of the heart of a man of God, and it's sung. That means it's passionate. O Lord, my God, it's the first time in the Psalms that David puts together, uppercase L-O-R-D is Jehovah. It's Yahweh. And so that's the personal name for God of the people he has chosen out of the world, the Jews. And so this is Yahweh. And so he says, oh, Yahweh, my God, and, and, and we just, you know, we, we, we go right over it. We don't think of it. But what you have to realize is when David names Yahweh his God, what he's saying is Moloch is not his God. Moloch was the Canaanite god at the time who required the people to give him their babies and he, he burned them with fire. So the center of Moloch worship was burning little babies with fire. David doesn't say, oh Moloch, my god. And there was absolutely no compromise between Moloch and Jehovah. Jehovah told the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites because of the wickedness of their God. Okay? And so David says, Yahweh, my God. And right away, he identifies himself. And that's who we pray to. We don't pray to Allah. Because Allah sends people into uh, city squares, city markets, and blows people up. And then they're assured of 70 virgins in heaven. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Our God is merciful. Our God is gracious and long-suffering. Those are his names. Our God is our Father. And Muslims will explicitly say to you that they will not consider God nor name him as Father. Why? Because their God keeps track. Their God is a Father, but he's not a Father, but he's a Father that can never be pleased. Because he keeps perfect track like this. And yet the Bible tells us that the kindness of our God leads us to repentance. Imagine that being said about Allah. Then you go to Buddha and you go all over the world. David says, my God is Jehovah. Oh Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Well, taking refuge is... um, it's, it's a castle with a moat. It's a hiding place in a rock. And so David says, Oh Lord, my God, I'm all in with you. You're my protection. You're my castle. You are my protection. In you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me. So David is not simply being pursued by one man. David is being pursued by a bunch because he says all them who pursue me. Now, like I said the last couple of weeks, every psalm people want to put it in a setting, a historical setting. And if you look above, you'll see it's Cush a Benjamite. Well, we don't know who that is, but some people think that it's either uh, Shimei or that it's Saul, because both Saul and Shimei were Benjamites, all right, of the tribe of Benjamin. And you say, well, who is Shimei? And I say, you remember that dude that was throwing stones at David and cursing him while he was fleeing from Jerusalem because his son Absalom was leading an insurrection? That's Shimei. 
So Saul, you remember who he is. So Saul, they're both Benjamites. We don't know. We do know that there were plural people who were pursuing him. And David says, save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Why? Well, because this is the danger. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. Well, you remember that the Bible warns us The people of God, the Bible warns that Satan is roaming around like what? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you've all seen movies of lions taking their prey. And what they do when they take their prey is they they clomp down on the flesh, but they drag it away, and if some other predator comes close, they growl. They're very possessive about their prey. And so David says that he is like a sheep, okay, who is going to be torn apart. Tear my soul. Soul refers to our whole being, all right? And so he says, if you don't save me, he, his, his enemies, but this time it's singular, he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. He's so in with God, so completely trusting of God, that there is no hope for him if God doesn't rescue him. So here's the question. How have you hedged your bets? Are you all in with God? When trouble hits you, What is your security? David knows that these enemies are going to win unless God protects him. And what a sweet thing for a man to be able to say. I wish I could say that. Self-protectiveness is at the center of uh, aggression. Self-protection is antithetical to meekness. Right? I am so busy protecting myself. And that's what? It's an indication that I'm not waiting on God. It's an indication that I trust myself more than I trust God to protect myself, right? I remember a pastor friend of mine who about 10 years ago, for a couple of years when we would talk, that pastor would say to me, you know, Tim, I've been here so long. He said, I can do anything I want to now in his church. Is that man protected by God? No. You think of the contrast between a man like that and a man like Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy at the end of his ministry. Great pastor in London and and he got old. He got to the time in his life unquestionably the greatest preacher used by God in his generation, maybe in a century. And the end of his ministry, I haven't read a biography, but I've had, heard people tell this so often, 
that at the end of his ministry, it was defined by him being despised by others and him having to fight. David says, I'm under attack. If you don't save me, I will be like a sheep and I will be attacked by the lion and I will be dragged off and I will be completely destroyed, God, if you don't protect me. O oh Lord, my God, verse 3, if I have done this, if there is, and so he says, all right, you're my hope, you're my trust. If you don't protect me, I will be devoured by my enemies as if they were lions dragging me away where no one can deliver me. And then he says this, O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands. So he's moving from saying, I'm all in. You are the only one that can save me from this. There's nothing I can do. I have my trust in nobody but you. And then he says, furthermore, I'm righteous. If I have done this, and then he lists how he's righteous. If there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust ceiling. <laughs> and that's a prayer that you pray all the time. Right? You're just always saying to God, if I've done anything wrong, if I've been unjust, unfair, if I've repaid evil for evil, then let me die and let my honor be completely destroyed. Right? You pray that all the time, right? <laughs> I bet most of you don't pray that, and I bet the reason that you don't pray that is the reason I don't pray that. Which is, you don't think it would take God very long to say, okay, you're going to die and you're going to have no honor. And then you think, well, why could David pray it? And this is where we go into la-la land. This is where we begin to talk about this being a messianic psalm. You know, that this psalm is really Jesus praying, and David's written it in such a way that it can be prophesying the condition of Jesus, and of course it is true of Jesus. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus did not, he, you remember that he did not answer back. You remember he was scorned, he was mocked, he was spit on. Prophesy, tell us who just struck you, right? And his whole life he was being attacked, right? And so yes, this is a prayer of Jesus, right? And so, remember how I said this is where we go into la-la land. So, like, we're reading through it, and we say, oh, this is really intense. And then we get, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, and we think, whoa. Well, this is a messianic psalm. You know, this is a psalm for Jesus. Jesus can pray this psalm, and I don't have to. Did you hear what I said? Jesus can pray this psalm, and I don't have to. You know? And I tell you, this is one of the dangers of the Old Testament. When, when we come to the Old Testament, if we're always looking for how it applies to Jesus, 
It's sneaky because often that means that we don't look at how it applies to us. And let me tell you something. This is not your psalm for your soul if you're always thinking that only Jesus can pray it. In other words, David was under attack from the wicked. And if you want to start with the issue that we have to face in this psalm, the first issue we have to face is that the wicked don't attack us. I mean, right? If this should be our prayer, we should be able to see places where we are being attacked by the wicked And we are defenseless because we won't defend ourselves in that case because God is the only one that can vindicate us, right? In other words, we don't start here where he's claiming his innocence to say, well, I can't claim my innocence. What we really should be doing is going back to the very beginning of the psalm where he's saying he's under attack by the godless. And we should say, why am I not under attack by the godless? Are you all with me? What sense does it make for God, for God to call us to pray this prayer if there's no occasion for us to pray it? So then ask yourself, why am I not under attack by the godless? And some of you can say, well, because I'm too young. Right? I'm too young for anybody to attack me. I still am pretty. Nobody likes attacking a pretty girl. Then some of the others, well, I'm too old. Nobody attacks an elderly woman. And then some of us say, well, because I'm too nice. And I say, now you're getting warm. You're getting warm. How nice are you? And you say, well, I'm nicer than Jesus. I've never had anybody say they don't like me because I'm not nice. He says, oh Lord, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, and so that's lifting it up to a special level of righteousness. Because what you expect him to to say is, or have plundered, my adversary, vengeance is mine, I shall repay, says Tim Bailey. I've plundered my adversary, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, or if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. Well, look, you may not have the, the um, you may not be bodacious enough to plunder somebody who is your adversary, But what about the man that's your enemy and you never did anything to him? You see, that raises it to a whole different level because this is is somebody who's your enemy without cause. There's just no cause, right? And boy, that really burns. You know, in, in the give and take of life, we do make enemies. Insofar as it depends that you live at peace with all men. But sometimes, you know, the car won't start and you're sitting at, at the stoplight. And they think that you're texting, that you're asleep, that you're daydreaming, and they're honking the horn. The car won't start. You have an enemy behind you. 
But let's say that as soon as the light turned green, you went ahead and put your foot on the accelerator and were off the line. And they still won't catch you. You know, if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, what? Then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then, so help me God. See what? You know, it's, it's sort of a signature at the end. I really mean this. It's like, amen, right? So David is under attack. He's under the attack of the wicked. He's put his entire defense in God's hands. And he says, God, vindicate me, protect me, because I am righteous. And if I'm not, you try me. If I'm not, then go ahead, put my life in the dust, and take my honor away. And so this is a prayer for Christians. Do you have enemies? Are your enemies the wicked? Is your defense God? Are you all in with him? And as you go to him to protect you, do you say to him, I am righteous? Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Well, if we have enemies, if they're the wicked, if we're all in with God, and if we are able to ask him to examine us to see if there is any wicked way in us, and to vindicate us, or abandon us to our enemies based on his judgment of us. If we have made it that far in this psalm, we certainly have not made it to the next step. Because here he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. This is mind-boggling. This is like completely wacko. First of all, it says arise. Does anybody think God's asleep? He who is the guardian of Israel, Scripture tells us, neither what? Neither slumbers nor sleeps. And so God can't sleep. God is not unaware of our situation. So why would David be saying, wake up, essentially? Wake up, God. Does God not see the suffering of his children? God knows absolutely every single tiniest bit. He knows the hairs on our head that fall out, he says. He knows when a sparrow falls. So why does David think he's asleep? Then David says, not just wake up, but wake up in anger. Now why? 
Well, look at what comes next. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. So in other words, the reason that David is saying that God should rise up in anger is that his enemies are unjustly giving themselves to wrath against David. So David is righteous, and they hate him. And so David says, arise in anger to meet their anger. It's not that David likes the thought of God being angry, but he knows it's only the anger of God which will meet the anger of the wicked. And let me tell you, when the anger of God meets the anger of the wicked, Scripture, when it describes that moment, nothing is as intense in Scripture as the descriptions of that moment. That's where the statements come from. Mountains fall on me. The wicked are so blown away with the power and wrath of God that they plead for the mountains to fall on them. And there's nothing in our world today that is anywhere close to giving us a feel for this. Even it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond our ability to, to even conceive of it. This last week I read an article in the New Yorker about the plate tectonics off Seattle. And then yesterday I read that Amazon's selling out of tsunami kits. Because they say everything west of five, everything will be gone. You know, a wave, a wall of water, somewhere between 50 and 150 feet high, carrying boats and rocks and everything on the front edge. And it will completely wipe out all life west of I-5. And it's 100, 150 years overdue. They've gone back and they can trace when it's happened across history. And so everybody's afraid of the tsunami. I mean, the earthquake will be horrible, but the tsunami will be even worse. And it's, it's just like nothing. It's absolutely nothing compared to the wrath of God against the ungodly. It's nothing. And David pleads for that wrath to meet the wrath of the ungodly. It's very interesting to read what Spurgeon says at this point. He says... Um, Actually, I'm sorry. It's here. He says, God's silence is the patience of long-suffering. And then he says, and if wearisome to the saints. In other words, if we, if we get um, irritated with it, that God doesn't bring his wrath to bear against the wrath of the ungodly. If it's wearisome waiting for him to be done with his patience and long-suffering, he says, saints should bear it cheerfully in the hope that sinners may thereby be led to repentance. And so the very holding off of God's wrath is the kindness of God that leads us that led us to repentance, those of us who have repented, and that leads the wicked to repentance. And you know, how often do we want God to stop being kind? 
and we just want him to be done and to bring his judgment to bear. In, in Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Is one of the reasons I don't believe in pedo communion. I don't think they're a category of people who don't have to have the kindness of God leading them to repentance. Do you understand that? I think our children, from the time we're able to talk to them, we should be warning them that it is the kindness of God that is leading them to repentance. There aren't categories of children who come from the womb pure. Relatively speaking, compared to their mother, they are. (laughs) Their father... And so Spurgeon says, don't be impatient with God's patience. Don't grow testy about God's kindness, because the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself. And then he says this. He says, you have appointed judgment. God has appointed judgment. And this is going to be a rude awakening to every American. Every American is completely certain that he has the right sense of fairness, that he is the judge of what is just and what is unjust, that his perceptions of what is fair are accurate. And so every American goes to Scripture and judges Scripture by his conceit. And that's what this young engineer was doing. Jesus isn't nice. And you know, that could be the theme of every Facebook page that there is. Jesus isn't nice. That's what the whole country is saying about homosexuality. God says it's an abomination, and the whole world says to God, you aren't nice. And then David says this. David says, you have appointed judgment. What this means is God has ordained judgment. This means that judgment doesn't come from us to God, but it comes from God to us, right? And we read in in Hebrews, it says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. My wife's family uh, company, Tyndale House, published a book recently by a young boy who claimed that he died and and that after he died, he experienced these things. So he wrote them all up. You know, what happened to him after he died. And I was so disappointed that my relatives published this book. Why? Well, because he didn't die. How do I know that? All right, are you ready? This, this is, you're supposed to be a pastor in the geographical area you grow up. But I grew up in Philadelphia... And so sometimes I do Philadelphia things instead of Midwestern sort of white bread stuff. All right? And so, okay, how do I know that he didn't die? All right, you ready? It says, it's appointed unto man once to die. All these stories and all these books and all this stuff... 
Bible says it's appointed unto man twice to die. And you say, well, that's not fair. You know that's not what scripture means. It doesn't mean that. I say, well, the word once says once. It is appointed unto man once to die. And you know all the stories are what? All the stories show that God is a warm, velveteen, fuzzy bunny rabbit. And that there's like a cottony, misty, vaporous kind of, sort of, you know, warm, cosmic, karmic, kind of good vibe kind of being who kind of draws you to the light, right? Always light. And I say, if the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to judgment, and I'm going to assume that you tremble of thinking about your judgment, and that the only thing that gives you the faith to stand in the judgment is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Can I assume that about you? Then why would you publish a book that says that it's appointed a man twice to die and after that the warm fuzzies. Now, after they made tons of money off the book, all of a sudden this kid reneges the whole thing. He says, I made the whole thing up and it's all a lie. Okay, you ready? Here we go again. Oh, duh. Okay, or what my wife doesn't like me to say, a handkerchief would help him. What my wife doesn't like me to say is, any idiot knew that. (laughs) You know? You know it's not true because God's word says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And here it says to God from David, he says, you have appointed judgment, you have ordained judgment. Judgment isn't something I want, right? I mean, honestly, everybody accuses us of that. But I mean, do you want to face the judgment seat? Every time scripture speaks of the judgment seat, it speaks in such a way that you know you're being warned. And it's just as much a warning for Christians as it is for unbelievers when you read scripture. God is the one who has ordained judgment. God is going to be a perfectly seeing being. He will not be a blind lady justice with the scales. God is keeping track of everything. You know, everybody's all upset because Google's tracking them. Forget about Google. God doesn't need Google. God sees us. Every idle word. This last week, I want it to be absolutely clear to me that you listen to God's word. You don't listen to me. I preach God's word. I don't preach God's word. That doesn't surprise you because I'm a sinner. This last week, Mary Lee confronts me. Why? Oh, this last week, we had a couple couples over, and I meant to send, send them an email apologizing for what I said. 
but I didn't get it done, so I'll apologize in front of everybody. This last week, we're sitting at the table, and I'm starting to say something, and Mary Lee doesn't really interrupt. It's, it's kind of an interruption, but it's not really. She's my helpmate, and she just adds something, but it, it subverts the direction I'm going in. And you know what I said? Are you ready? And my wife would be furious if she knew I was going to tell you this now. Because why? Because my wife doesn't want you to think ill of me. I just jokingly said, oh yeah, that's my idiot wife. And my wife afterwards was not angry at me. She was wounded for me, right? And so Josh and Nisha and Mark and Esther, where are you? I'm so sorry I said that about my wife. I don't think of her that way. And I do love her. And that was sin. But now I come back and say, God has ordained judgment. Those words, I will give an accounting to God. I don't mind if you guys think I'm horrible. Because I know God knows I am. And there's not even a thought in my brain that escapes God's record. Every idle word. That wasn't even an idle word. That was a, that was a non-idle word. I wish that had been an idle word. God has ordained judgment. Not one of us, not any of your relatives, the people you love, none of your friends, the people you work for. The day will come when every, every single deed and every word will be judged. And God has ordained that. And who will stand? Hebrews 4.13 says, you know, everybody wants to have promises of Scripture on their walls, and, you know, you want to have nice Scripture verses on your table, and you know, on the refrigerator and in front of you on the window of the kitchen as you work at the sink. And you know, you know what I'm saying? So here's one for you. Put this one up. This is a promise of God. He says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. <laughs> What a wonderful promise from God. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare, naked, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You don't have to do with your husband. You don't have to do with your mother-in-law. You don't have to do with me. You don't have to do with the elders. You don't have to do with the older. You don't have to deal with a policeman. You don't have to deal with a judge. You don't have to deal with your professors. You don't have to deal with your children. Who you have to deal with is God. And God is not sentimental. And we have the testimony of a Virginia Tech graduate degree holding engineer that he's not nice. He's not sentimental and he's not nice. And it is God that we have to do, deal with. It is him 
with whom we have to do. That's what it means. Now, this is wonderfully liberating because it removes you from the shame culture of Asia. You no longer live for your relatives. You no longer live in fear of the community judging you harshly or judging you rightly and having to move away. You no longer have to be afraid of what people think of you. Because it's God with whom you have to do. It's God. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare. Naked to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. David goes on, he says, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. And so David is looking at the people of God that God has chosen and he's, they're surrounding God and God mounts. You know, the judge comes in, all rise. And he's high and lifted up and he has appointed judgment. And now it comes. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God. So David continues to proclaim his innocence. Who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. You know, we, we always want to, um, we always want God to be a sentimental grandpa. And, and so we come out with this trite uh, saying that we're, we're to hate the sin but love the sinner. And we think that that is the final statement about God's relationship with the wicked. And there is truth to that. We are to hate the sin but love the sinner. But if by that we mean that God is not angry against the sinner, we haven't begun to realize how precious God's holiness is to him. God doesn't hold any of his attributes. He doesn't hold any of his personal characteristics lightly. God doesn't have any trouble feeling guilty about his self-esteem. He's the only one that has self-esteem, and it's called his jealousy for his own glory. And so when God has holiness, when God has justice, when God has truth, he's not embarrassed. And if somebody sets themselves against God's perfections, which is what it means to break the Ten Commandments, it's to trash God's character, because God's character is revealed through the Ten Commandments. God doesn't lie, he cannot lie, and therefore do not bear false witness, right? God is a God of life, and therefore don't murder. Satan loves death, God is a God of life. And so when we think of God as not hating, as not being angry against the wicked, and we come out with trite statements like, well, you got to love the sinner and, and hate the sin, but love the sinner. And then we think we've summarized who God is. And then the people we've repeated that to all the time and the people that we have prided ourselves on being so nice, even though they're sinners, right? Well, you know, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. And they have no clue what they're going to face in the wrath of God when they're judged. 
because we have been unfaithful witnesses to them. We haven't warned them of God's wrath against them. We have not told them that the kindness of God is leading them to repentance. We have not explained to them how God is restraining his judgment, but that he has appointed his judgment, and that it's coming. You know, you think about a train, and, and, and you've been around the tracks long enough to know what the signs are that the train's coming, right? You know that, first of all, if you're watching through the valley, I used to, I used to fish up in the Rockies um, at this lake, way high up. And it was right by a, uh, it was right by um, a tunnel. Well, it wasn't right by it. It's probably from here to over in Carts Farm Park. But I could look up at the lake and I could see the uh, doors on the tunnel of this railroad. And you're all alone, way up in the mountains fishing. I was always on the shore. I I didn't have a boat. And all of a sudden, you know it's coming. And then you faint hearing. Sometimes you can feel the ground shake. And then you hear a faint noise. And then the doors, these humongous doors go open. And. Here comes the locomotive. Right? Unbelievable noise, unbelievable power and strength up at the top of the mountains. The air that's moved through the tunnel as it goes through the tunnel. Unbelievable power. If you had a friend that was standing right past the doors on the tracks, would you wait until the last minute to tell them that the train was coming? Would you wait until they're on their deathbed and morphine has them so doped up? Or would you try to predict when they were going to be in a deathbed with morphine and and knock it a month earlier? If you really loved the person, and if they really were giving themselves to sin, if they really weren't repentant, if you knew, we keep going, and we see this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. And of course, what am I thinking? I'm thinking of Lawrence and I'm thinking of, uh, of uh, Thaddeus, who makes the, you know, the, the old-time bows and Lawrence shoots the new-time bows. And God, it says, he will sharpen his sword he has bent his bow and made it ready. Now, what do you make a bow ready for, and what do you sharpen a sword for? Hacking up a good steak? Target practice? God just liked to be a, known as a marksman? And it's God that's doing this. In fact, Spurgeon says here that God sharpens that that the grindstone that God sharpens his sword on is our daily sin. That as we sin, it's like a grindstone going around and it's sharpening the sword of God for our judgment. He bends his bow. I really wonder whether we honestly communicate to our loved ones their condition as they give themselves to pride and unrepentance. 
I wonder whether we communicate to them that as they refuse to repent and give themselves to pride, that God is bending his bow and sharpening his sword. I wonder whether any of us have ever communicated this to somebody we love. We're going to wait until our loved ones are on morphine? Now, now, now is the day of repentance. Don't tell me you love somebody if you haven't explained to them that God is bending his bow and sharpening his sword. Seems like this is a truth you would want to communicate. God, not man, not me, not our elders, God has ordained what? Say it back to me. Judgment. God has ordained what? So it's the young men who said it. Because they haven't been indoctrinated by the church enough to know that they should just shut up. God has ordained what? That's better. That's better. God has ordained judgment. And so we don't have to carry the burden of acting as if it's our self-righteousness, it's our punitive nature, it's our, you know, nasty, jealous kind of, you know, that we're all woke up with, you know, dyspepsia, that we're just sort of cranky by nature, although that is true of a couple of us here. God has ordained judgment. And David says, the righteous God tries, my shield is with God. God will sharpen his sword. He's bent his bow. He's made it ready. He's also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Now we have to watch here because at this point, he switches from speaking of God to speaking of the wicked. And you don't have any clue of that because the word he is used. But here he begins to describe the wicked. He says, behold, he travails with wicked. And he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate, on his own head. And so it's like David is speaking to God. And then he says, he, and you know, you don't see the body movement. And so the, the words, it doesn't make sense to you. And so, where is this shown in Scripture? Well, this is shown in Scripture a couple of places notoriously. One is when uh, Ahab stole the vineyard of Naboth. You remember that? And so Naboth died, and Jezebel got the vineyard. And afterwards, what do we read happened? Ahab ended up having his blood spilled on the ground of the vineyard. And God arranged to have dogs eat his blood on the vineyard that he had stolen. And then we also have the grand example in scripture, which is uh, Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai hated righteous, I mean, Haman hated righteous Mordecai. And Haman erected a a 50-meter gallows to hang Mordecai on. And then God flipped the switch. God has ordained judgment, and God said, it's over. And the wife knew what was coming. And it ended up being Haman 
who was lifted up 150 feet in the air on his scaffold and was killed. He had dug the pit, he had made the trap, and he himself was caught in it. God's no fool. God's no fool. We can't snooker God. We can't snooker the righteous. God keeps track of every hair on our head. And when the wicked plot for our destruction, God knows. And God will never abandon his children. He will not do it. Because we're the apple of his eye. And you don't want to think this way because you don't wish for your enemies to be caught in their own traps, right? But this is God's specialty. God has ordained judgment. It's not poetic justice. It's not irony. It's the character of God. God will give to the wicked what they design to give to the righteous. This is his character. And then the end of the psalm. I, David, will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. It begins with singing, it ends with singing. Now, this is this psalm. Is it your psalm? Do you want to sing it? Do you have faith to sing it? You, you might say, no, I don't have faith to sing it. And then I just say, well, would you please aspire to sing it? Don't you feel that so much of worship is aspirational? You know, by faith we sing it. We don't sing it because we find this song in our hearts. We find it, we sing it because we find it in Scripture. And so we aspire to have this be the prayer of our hearts. And if we find ourselves praying this prayer, we don't condemn ourselves. Because even though we think we should, even though we think that this must be sin to pray this way, we don't go off in la-la land saying, well, yeah, but Jesus prays it, and so I'll, I'll pray it because Jesus is my righteousness. Well, that's true. But people, let me end where we began. And that is that David had enemies. David had enemies. Remember I told you I'd read you where a couple walked out in the early service. Let me read it to you at the end. There was a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a great Puritan minister, and this comes from around 1660. And Spurgeon, uh, in his commentary, puts in an excerpt from Burroughs, from his preaching on this, and, and here's the excerpt. He says, in the primitive times, the people of God were then a people under great reproach, what strange things does Tertullian, he was an early church father, tell us they reproached them with? Well, they approached them that their meetings were Tiestes suppers and that they invited their brothers to these suppers and then presented their brothers with a dish of their own flesh. And so what was one of the charges in the early church? It was universally charged that the Lord's Supper was uh, cannibalism. Just what people said was going on in the Lord's Supper. 
They charged them with uncleanness because they met in the night. Well, why did they meet in the night? The reason they met in the night was because they were being persecuted, so they had to hide it. And so what everybody said then was the reason they met at night was they were having sexual orgies. So what Roman Empire people believed about Christians was that they were cannibals and that their high sacrament was cannibalism and that they were having orgies in, in, in their worship services. They reproached them also for ignorance, saying that they were all unlearned, and therefore the heathens in Tertullian's time used to paint the god of the Christians with an ass's head, a jackass, a donkey. They'd paint Jesus with a donkey's head, and he would have a book in his hand to signify that though Christians pretended to be learned, they were completely unlearned, silly people who were rude and ignorant. What are we? I mean, what does Bloomington think about us? Bishop Jewell, in his sermon on, on, on Luke 11.5, cites this out of Tertullian, quote, Do not our adversaries do the like at this day against all those that profess the gospel of Christ. They say that Christians are nothing but shoemakers, tailors, weavers, and such who have never been at a university. That's what they said about us, you know, a millennium and a half ago. Josephus tells us that Apollinaris, speaking concerning the Jews and Christians, that they were more foolish than any barbarian. Uh, an Egyptian said, quote, Christians gathering together of a most filthy, lecherous people. He said that the keeping of the Sabbath was because, quote, they had a disease that was upon them and they, were, they needed to rest the seventh day because of the disease. In Augustine's time, they had this expression, anyone that begins to be godly presently, he must prepare to suffer reproach from the tongues of his adversaries. Cyprian, the great church father, they called him Coprian, C-O-P-R-I-A-N, one that gathers up dung. As if all the excellent things that he had gathered in his works were but dung. And so, brothers and sisters, Thomas Watson says about this psalm, it is a sign that there is some good in you if a wicked world abuses you. And then he quotes Socrates, who said, What evil have I done that this bad man commends me? And then he says, The applause of the wicked usually denotes some evil, and their censure imports some good, indicates some good. Listen, um, I'm going to end with this. You all... If you've heard of Spurgeon, you universally respect him, right? How many of you have heard of Spurgeon and you just love Spurgeon, right? We all love Spurgeon, right? Great, great preacher. In the, uh, you know, back in the um, late 1800s. And nobody has anything against Spurgeon. You know he ended his life completely cut off, right? You know that. But what I haven't told you until now is, do you know what he titled his sermon on this, on this psalm? 
The title he gave his sermon was Turn or Burn. And you know, when I said that to the first service, there was somebody over here who just laughed out loud. Why? Well, because we think of that as being sort of the disgusting scare tactics of ignorant Baptist preachers. But would anybody accuse Spurgeon today of being ignorant? Unbelievably brilliant. But what a wonderful description of what it is that is so starkly jolting to us about this psalm. It's a perfect title for a sermon on this psalm, Turn or Burn. And so, pray the psalm. Learn the musician setting of this psalm and sing it. And it will correct the errors of your thinking, of your convictions. It will make you take holiness more serious. It will cause you to be less ashamed of Jesus when you're around the wicked. Because you will desire for them to attack you because that will be a comfort to you that you belong to Jesus. You won't do it because you're obnoxious. You will do it because you stop being obnoxious. And you say, what do you mean by obnoxious? I say being ashamed of the one who bought you with his own blood. That's obnoxious. Right? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will keep us from being ashamed of the gospel. We pray that we will begin to pray the prayers that are given to us in this wonderful book of prayers. We thank you that Jesus was not ashamed of his Father and that he was perfectly obedient. We thank you for the suffering that this caused him. We thank you that he bore that suffering without bitterness or complaint. We thank you that he went to the cross and gave his life up as a sacrifice, turning aside your wrath against us. Father, help us to give ourselves to this psalm, we pray in Jesus' name.